And please open your Bibles to Matthew 28, verse 16. Our passage for this morning is the Great Commission, uh, which is found in Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Uh, Let's actually begin by reading our passage together. This is just after the resurrection, of course. Jesus has told his disciples to meet him in Galilee to receive further instructions. And now Matthew writes this. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This morning marks a momentous uh, occasion in the life of our church because this morning... After nearly five years, we conclude the Gospel of Matthew. This is the very first book of the Bible that we've studied together, verse by verse, cover to cover. And now, after almost 200 messages, it's over. I've mentioned this before, but, 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 but they've warned us actually in seminary. They said, pick something short uh, for your first book in a new church. The congregation will grow tired of something that's too long, uh, but I couldn't help it. When I had to decide five years ago what I believed to be the best book to start with as the foundation for our church, I kept coming back to the Gospel of Matthew. After all, I can think of no better place for a church to begin its study of God's Word than with the Gospel, since it's the Gospels that relay to us the life of Jesus Christ, who is the Word incarnate. He is very God of very God, in the words of Hebrews 1.3, the exact imprint of His nature. In fact, not only is He that, not only is He the the perfect representation of God, because He is God, but He's also the perfect representation of man. He is the second Adam, the the one human being in, in all of human history who actually obeyed God in all things. And it's on the basis of this perfect obedience that He also becomes our Savior. He is our sacrifice, the atonement for our sins, and it is from Him that the Holy Spirit is poured out into our hearts through faith. He is at once the means, the pattern, and the object of our worship. This is why Paul says in Colossians 2.3 that in Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All truth is summed up in Jesus. And this means I can think of no better place for a church to begin its study of the Scripture than with a gospel, because the gospels tell us about the very embodiment of truth, Jesus Christ. And I can think of no better place for a church to begin than with the Gospel of Matthew in particular. The reason I say this is because this Gospel, with the Sermon on the Mount and the Kingdom parables and the community discourse of chapter 18, this Gospel, with the Great Commission, it's probably impacted the daily life of the church more than any other Gospel. It's generally agreed that this was more or less considered to be the primary gospel for the first 1,800 years of the church. Its influence in this respect is unmatched. In fact, it's even driven one commentator to state that, quote, mainstream Christianity was, from the early 2nd century on, to a great extent, Matthean Christianity. So historically, Matthew has played a dramatic role in the life of the the development of the life of the church. It's a hugely influential gospel. It's an incredibly important, even foundational book. And it's also incredibly relevant. I look at this gospel, and and it's written to Jewish Christians trying to navigate their way through the implications of the gospel's rejection by religious people. They're confused by how people who seem so zealous for God and seem to know so much Bible can still reject this basic gospel message. Understand, this is a book written to religious people. It's not written to an unchurched community of believers, but to the kids that grew up in a Christian home and went to Sunday school their entire life and then suddenly discovered the gospel sometime in college or ten years into their marriage. It's written with people who are going to struggle with legalism and hypocrisy and self-righteousness, not open licentiousness. 
It's written to former Pharisees. It's an account from a former tax collector written to guys like Paul explaining what righteousness looks like according to Jesus. And that's us. That's southwest Missouri. We live in one of the most church areas of the entire world. We don't live in Babel. We live in Jerusalem. Ours is a religious community. So I think Matthew has been an absolutely perfect starting point for us. I have absolutely zero regrets about starting the first five years here. I can still think of no better foundation for our church to be built on than the Gospel of Matthew. And I think this is going to become even more evident this morning as we study the Great Commission. I don't know if this analogy is going to make any sense uh, to many of you, just I guess depending on age and kind of when you grew up watching TV, but, but growing up I used to, to watch a lot of sitcoms. That's just what I do after school, especially in middle school. I'd, I'd come home from school, I'd play hockey for a few hours, and then I'd get home usually around 5.30, and I'd watch a few of my favorite sitcoms until around 7.30. You know, quotes uh, from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air are still burned into my brain just from the repetition of it all as I watch the same shows over and over again. Well, the sitcoms I grew up on were 90s sitcoms. And if you're familiar with the genre of 90s sitcoms, then you know that a staple of the 90s sitcom is the clip show. You know what a clip show is, right? The clip show is what happens when sitcom writers get lazy after a couple seasons and they start running out of ideas. And so they come up with a thinly veiled excuse for the characters to reminisce for a week about all the experiences that they've shared together. The result is an entire episode of clips from past seasons which are basically refried jokes, right? You probably watched one of these before. Uh, I, I can still remember one episode of The Fresh Prince where Will and Carlton are stuck on an elevator and as they're panicking over whether or not they're about to die, they start bringing up all these moments they've shared in their life and voila, clip show, okay? The clip show is a kind of summary of previous seasons. It's when all the old jokes and events of past episodes are restated and condensed into a single episode. Well, the Great Commission is essentially the clip show of the Gospel of Matthew. It's the place where all the themes of the Gospel are recapitulated and stated in a single overwhelming application. As, as one commentator states, there may be no better way to summarize the theology of Matthew, to summarize the theology of Matthew, than by following up on the themes found in the Great Commission. And I, I personally, I couldn't agree more. I think once you get a sense of what Jesus is saying in the Great Commission, then you realize that this is really the summary application of the entire book. In other words, if you understand what Matthew has said throughout this book up to this point, then you should see that this is the next logical step. It should be to go and do the sort of thing that Jesus commands here. And when I think of the message that we need to hear as a church plant, not just five years ago, but five years later, right now, nothing's changed. It's all summed up in this directive, this mission from Jesus. So what is this mission? And what can we learn about it from today's passage? I think it can be stated in, in the form of five adjectives or attributes. Once again, these are five attributes which really summarize the entire teaching of Matthew. And the first attribute is rescue. Rescue. It's a rescue mission. Jesus is commissioning his disciples to go and deliver sinners from the wrath of God. This is the attribute that I think is probably the hardest to discern from the text, but it is there. And it comes up in verse 18, in the, in the beginning of verse 19. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. Now that might seem like a rather innocuous statement at first blush, but it's not. It's a statement that's steeped in, the, in Matthew's theology that he's been developing throughout this book. And I think when you see it in that light, then you can understand a sense of the, the seriousness, the, the gravity, even the import of this statement. What do I mean? Well, one of the central questions in Matthew, really even the central question in Matthew, is who is Jesus? Or to put it even more specifically, is Jesus the Christ? Is He the Messiah? Is He the promised Davidic King? 
And, and not to beat a dead horse, because I know I've talked about this at length the, the past couple of messages, but the reason why that question matters so much is because of what Israel understood the Messiah would do upon his arrival. John the Baptist stated it well when he said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The Messiah will baptize with the Holy Spirit. This is to say that He will inaugurate the new covenant. But He will also baptize with fire. That's a reference to divine judgment. The Messiah would do both. And in fact, He would do both as in more or less one act. The establishment of the new covenant is really supposed to be the event that kicks off the final act of judgment in the Old Testament. Because it's through that covenant that Israel finally repents, believes, calls on the name of the Lord, and is saved from their enemies. This is what Israel believed the Messiah would do. You flip over to the Olivet Discourse, and it's it's an entire description of divine judgment at the end of the world. And much of that is drawn from the book of Daniel. Jesus is just updating His disciples about how the chronology of Daniel relates to His ministry and the disciples' place in in history. Israel anticipated this final act of judgment because they understood that what it meant for them was deliverance. It meant salvation. Salvation perhaps not in a spiritual sense, at least they didn't understand it that way, but at least in an earthly or political one. So Israel didn't fear the day of judgment. They desired it. They looked forward to it. And this meant that when they were looking for the Messiah, what they were asking is, who's the one who's going to destroy God's enemies and establish peace and righteousness on the earth? What Matthew's been trying to prove from the very beginning of this gospel is that Jesus is that individual. He is the Christ, and He will establish the kingdom of God through judgment. It starts as early as the genealogy in chapter 1 where Jesus, where he calls Jesus the son of David, the son of Abraham in the very first verse of this book. And he continues to demonstrate proof after proof of Jesus' authority during Jesus' ministry. Time and time again we see Jesus demonstrate authority over disease and death, over both the natural and the spiritual realm. We even see him demonstrate his authority over sin itself. The point throughout the gospel is that God has declared regarding Jesus... This is my man. This is the one in whom I am placing all authority. And of course, the crowds debate over the meaning of the signs, and the religious leaders try their hardest to suppress the message until Jesus finally enters into the city of Jerusalem to the cries of Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the issue throughout the book. Is Jesus the Christ? Is he the one who will judge the earth? As we've seen over the past few weeks, the question, this question has been answered by God with a resounding yes in the events surrounding Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. When Jesus dies, darkness comes over the land. Earthquakes erupt as a sort of preview of the final day of the Lord. Roman soldiers are trembling in fear at the, re- the realization that they've crucified the Son of God. Sunday rolls around, and in spite of their best effort, the, the, the best efforts, the religious leaders are unable to secure the body in the grave. Jesus has already conquered what 1 Corinthians 15 says is the very last enemy that must be destroyed at the end of the age, and that's death itself. And do you know what that all means? It means that Jesus is going to judge the earth. It means that He's going to slay the wicked. He's going to crush God's enemies. That, that is the theology that Matthew has been developing even up to the point of the resurrection last week. Now, read what Jesus says again in verses 18 and 19 in that light. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. Are you catching that? Are you seeing the progression in that statement? Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore, therefore. That therefore is significant because it indicates a logical conclusion. It's a cause and effect type of transition. The making of disciples is a necessary result of Jesus' authority. Jesus is telling His disciples, You need to go and make disciples. Why? 
because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So what's the connection there? You know, I think there's probably two ways we can understand the logic in that statement. He's, he's giving the command to make disciples, to make followers. And so, one way we could read this statement is to say that Jesus is worthy of disciples, right? He is worthy of adoration and praise. He has been given all authority in heaven and earth because of His perfect righteousness. Therefore, go and make disciples because He's worthy of all adoration and praise. That's one way we could read this statement. And that's a true concept theologically. You go to Philippians 2, for instance, and it says that as a result of Jesus' perfect obedience, quote, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That, that's universal praise in heaven and on earth, which is ascribed to Jesus because He is worthy of it. So I think we could read the logic in this sequence in that sense, make disciples because Jesus is worthy of praise and adoration. It's just that I don't think that sequence really fits the flow of this gospel. The focus of this gospel is more on Jesus' authority to inaugurate God's final kingdom and, and what will be the consequences to Israel in choosing to reject such a man. The, the message of this gospel is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is the Daniel 7 son of man, the one who has authority to cast out demons and calm the seas. The, the common response to Jesus when, when, he is, when his glory is unveiled in this gospel is fear. Even among his disciples, it's fear. You go back to Psalm 110, for instance, and it says regarding the coming of the Davidic king, quote, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. God says to the Messiah, come up here and rest beside me at my right hand for a while. Rest at my right hand until I destroy your enemies and send you to retake my rebellious planet. I think Jesus is talking about the resurrection in that sense. He's seeing it in light of what it, it says about His authority to judge the earth. And the idea is that He is already in the process of being exalted to the right hand of the Father. And that means judgment is imminent. In other words, I think Jesus is essentially going back to the Olivet Discourse here. He's told the disciples what's going to happen as a result of his rejection in the temple, and it's judgment. Of course, the disciples wanted to know when's that going to happen, and he's described what that's going to look like so they can know when it's happening. And what he's saying here is, now you can start looking. The countdown clock has officially started. Judgment is imminent. Judgment is imminent. Therefore, go and make disciples. You see the logic here? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. What Jesus is doing here, he's warning his disciples about the wrath that's soon to come upon the earth. And he says, so now's the time. You need to go and save as many as you can before that day comes. This is a rescue mission. Jesus is telling his disciples, you need to go and save people from the wrath of God. And given the imminence of this wrath, given the fact that Jesus has already received the, this authority to judge the earth and can therefore return in judgment at any time, this is a rescue mission with a great sense of urgency, obviously, right? Well, how urgent is this mission? I think we discover the answer in our next attribute. We've already seen that, that the Great Commission is a rescue mission. That's the first adjective, rescue. Well, it's also a broad mission. It's a broad mission. In other words, this mission is to be widespread. Now, I doubt this probably seems too unusual, but, but I think that's only because we're so familiar with the Great Commission today that we just assume this aspect of Jesus' command. However, when you set this command within the context of everything that's been said in Matthew up until this point, I think you can see not only how unusual this part of the command is, but I think it can also help you see how urgent this rescue mission is. You see, what's notable about this command is, is what Jesus says in verse 19. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And there are two aspects to that command. 
The apostles are not just to go and make disciples, but they're to make disciples of all nations. So both Jew and Gentile. They're to go and proclaim the coming kingdom to all people. And not only this, but they are to go. As in they're supposed to leave Israel in pursuit of their mission. They need to go out into the nations in order to proclaim this gospel. This is something that Jesus has explicitly pro prohibited up until this point in the gospel. He sent his disciples out on missions before, but up to this point he's never told them to go to the nations. In fact, he actually told them not to. The best example of this is found in Matthew 10 when Jesus sends the disciples on a mission in the cities of Galilee and, and he, he says quite explicitly, quote, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew 15, there's a similar occurrence where a Canaanite woman approaches Jesus for healing in the district of Tyre and Sidon. When the disciples plead with Jesus to answer her request, Jesus answers, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Jesus has been very clear up to this point. The gospel, in this gospel, that the mission has not been to Gentile nations. Now, there are several different reasons why Jesus gives these instructions in this way earlier in the gospel, but at the very center of it all is the Old Testament concept of mission. You go back to the Old Testament, and what, it, what you find is that God always intended to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what he meant when he said to Abraham in Genesis 12:3, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Gentile salvation was always a part of the plan. But the way it was supposed to work was through Israel. Again, the word to Abraham is, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Gentile salvation was always a part of the plan, but it was always Gentile salvation through Israel. Israel was to be the vehicle through which God worked His redemption. And this is why God chose to make His tent among the people of Israel and give them the law. It was so that Israel might become, in the words of Exodus 19.6, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Uh, there was, they were to be the mediator between God and the rest of the earth. The gospel was to be communicated through them. In fact, this is why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says to Jews, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. The city set upon a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's a reference to Isaiah 42 when God says regarding Israel, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind and to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Jesus is saying to Israel at that time, God has called you to be a light to the nations, but if you don't live this way, if you don't live in holiness, then what good are you? That's what the reference to salt is about, by the way. Salt was a purifying agent in the Old Testament. It's actually commonly used to remove blood from the meat, even today, in order to make it kosher. So are you following me here? It's used to make things holy. And Jesus is saying to Israel, you're supposed to be that. You're supposed to be the salt that removes the defilement from this planet. But if you yourselves are not holy, then what good are you? And then he delivers the Sermon on the Mount in order to describe what that holiness looks like. Listen, that's a warning. Jesus is saying, if you don't do your mission and sanctify this planet, then God is going to find someone else to do the job. Point being, Israel was to be the missionary nation. And the way that this mission was supposed to work in the Old Testament was that as Israel lived in holiness, the nations were supposed to come to them. Like if you think about the gravitational force surrounding a planet... The mission was supposed to work like that. Israel's righteousness was supposed to be so weighty, so beautiful, so glorious, that the other nations were naturally sucked into their orbit by the force of their lives and the power of their God. 
Israel's righteousness was meant to be attractive so that it would draw in the nations in like moths to a flame. The problem that's developed in this gospel is that not only has Israel rejected that mission, not only have they rejected the righteousness of God, but they've even rejected their Messiah as well. That's a major, major problem in light of Jesus' resurrection because it means that judgment is imminent and there's no one to warn because the vehicle that God created to warn the nations has broken down. Now, fortunately, that's, this is not a problem that God is unprepared for. In fact, He knows it's going to happen and He's prepared for it. That's another thing that Matthew has developed through this gospel. In the parable of the tenants, Jesus tells Israel that the mission is going to be transferred to someone else. He says to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Now, by this, Jesus doesn't mean that Israel has lost their blessing, but their mission is being transferred to another people who's going to produce their fruits for a period of time. We learn in Matthew 16 that this people will be referred to as Jesus' ecclesia, His church. And it's going to be built on the testimony of Peter and the apostles. So really, this is an outcome that Jesus has been preparing for since day one of His public ministry. Because it was always clear that before the ratification of the new covenant at the cross, Israel could only reject its Messiah. But nonetheless, the point is that for the time being at least, this original mission plan whereby the nations come in to Israel to learn about their God, it's not going to work. And judgment is imminent. So what does Jesus do? Well, as he steps up to the line, he reads the defense. And he calls an audible. He says, time to move to plan B. And plan B is to say to the disciples, the foundation of his church, you go out. The original mission was to Israel only, but that was not to the neglect of the Gentiles. You know, Matthew in this gospel shows a, shows a Gentile centurion pra, uh, participating in the blessing of the Messiah in Matthew 8. And Jesus does end up healing the Canaanite woman's daughter in Matthew 15, both on the basis of their faith. So the original mission was to Israel only, but it was not to the neglect of the Gentiles. Rather, it was for their blessing because the mission was supposed to work through Israel. Here, Jesus essentially says... That plan isn't going to work. And the imminency of God's wrath in light of my resurrection means something has to be done or else the Gentiles are going to be utterly swept away. So new plans. You go. You leave Israel. And you continue the mission among the Gentiles and make disciples of all the nations. That's really the significance of this instruction. There's a sense in which the mission has always been to the nations. It was just confined to Israel at first because they were to be the means by which that mission took place. Israel's rejection of that mission and the imminence of God's wrath means that the way this mission is going to happen has changed. It's going to happen now not by the world coming into Israel, but by the church going out. This is really what the go therefore means. Jesus' resurrection authority has changed the game. And there's really so much to discuss and explain at this point about the significance of this moment. This, I have to tell you, this shift in method really explains so much, so, so much of the differences between the New Testament and the Old. But unfortunately, we don't have time to get into all that right now. So suffice to say for the moment, we should not overlook the significance of what Jesus is saying here. The imminence of God's wrath means that we need to go out. Understand? Truth be told, I'd venture to say that most of us miss this point. We're operating under an Old Testament understanding of missions. We like to point to passages like Matthew 5, 13-16 and say to ourselves, I just need to be a light. I'm a city set upon a hill. If I just live righteously, if I just you know, give a good example, then people will ask me about Jesus. We comfort ourselves with our, that thought, don't we? I know I do. I, I find myself thinking like that from time to time. 
You know, it's the whole preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary mindset. You know, listen guys, it's not that that's not true. It's not that your example isn't the most powerful aspect of your testimony, it is. But there isn't time to wait for people to come to you. There isn't time to wait for people to come to you. Jesus' resurrection has changed the game. The day of the Lord could happen at any moment. This means that you and I need to get over ourselves. We need to stop thinking about the comforts of this life. We need to stop worrying about what people think of us. And we need to find a way to go out to others with the gospel. We're coming up on the five-year anniversary of our church. September 16, 2012. That's the day you could say that our church was officially formed. Now, there were a group of individuals meeting before that, and the church had already become incorporated by, by the state before that, so you could say that the church was already going even before that. But September 16, 2012, that was the day the membership covenants were signed. That's the day the Lord's table was first observed. So you could also make the argument that, the, that that's the day the church officially began. And that's, that's more or less the day that, that, that we look to as our anniversary. This means that it's coming up on five years since this local body officially formed. Just so you know, that's not an insignificant anniversary. I can remember sitting in seminary learning about church planting because I wanted to be a church planter really from day one. And there's one statistic I came across that still sticks out in my mind. I don't remember the source exactly or the class. I do remember the statistic though. It said nine out of, church, nine out of ten church plants die in the first five years. Nine out of ten. It's ninety percent. Listen, if you were sitting in the doctor's office and the doctor said to you, that lump we found on your skin is stage four melanoma and the five-year survival rate for stage four melanoma is around 15 to 20 percent. You wouldn't feel too good about that prognosis, would you? Well, every church plant starts with a five-year survival rate of around 10 percent. So the fact that we're still here after five years and growing, little by little maybe, but growing, that's something to celebrate. That's, that's a testament to God's grace to us and, and we should rejoice over it. But that being said, I don't know that you can say that we're a healthy church per se, or at least a mature church. And, and the main reason I'd say that is because we're not reproducing. Listen, Jesus didn't leave the church here on this planet simply to hold the fort until the time of his return. No, as we can see in this passage, he's left the church here in order to go and make disciples. This means that any church that's not doing that, any church that is not reproducing, it doesn't matter what their doctrine might be. They're not healthy. And by that measure, we're not a healthy church. And, and to be clear, I don't say that as an indictment against you. Quite the contrary. I, I, I just have to say, if this is an, an indictment against anyone, it's an indictment against me. Because I'm the primary teacher in this church. I'm the one up here every week telling you what the Word of God says. I understand that the product of this ministry is therefore largely a reflection of my teaching. So if the fault lands with anyone, it lands with me. I understand that. And I'll take responsibility for where we're at in this department. I'm not trying to pass the blame. All I'm saying is something's got to change. What this passage tells us is that as great as the first five years of our, of, of our church have been, the next five years need to be different. We need to take what Matthew has taught us in the first five years and use it to propel us into the mission he's relating to us today in the next five years. Because we don't have time to sit around and wait. Already we are running out of time. Every day that passes is another day closer to Christ's return. So we need to learn to get aggressive and get, go out to others with the gospel. Now, again, the leadership understands the role that we play in this process, and so we're trying to take some steps to institute that change. And I'd like to go over some of those changes with you at the conclusion of this morning's service. But before we do that, I want to ask, how will this mission work? And I want to answer that from this passage, because this passage tells us how to approach this mission with the next two attributes. And I think if you understand what this passage says about how this mission works, then the steps that we're wanting to take 
moving forward are going to make a lot more sense. The next attribute is this. Number three, complete. Complete. So once again, this is a rescue mission. It's a broad mission, but it's also a complete mission. Look what Jesus says in the rest of verse 19 and the first half of verse 20. Once again, he says in verse 19 that the apostles need to go and make disciples of all the nations. But then look at what he says next. This describes how we are to pursue this mission. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. If you look here, Jesus says that there are two, as two, two aspects to making a disciple, two steps to making a disciple. The, the first step is to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's a reference to conversion. And that's part of the Great Commission. That's the part of the Great Commission that everyone, especially Southern Baptists like us, right, are familiar with. The Great Commission means evangelism. But that's not all it means. Look again at verse 20. It also means teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. That's the part of the Great Commission that's often missed. The Great Commission means not only evangelism, it also means discipleship and sanctification. Jesus isn't just looking for confessors, he's looking for converts, he's looking for disciples. You go back to the Sermon on the Mount, and once again, this is one of the charges that people laid against Jesus. Because Jesus emphasized forgiveness and mercy and grace, you know, because he took on disciples like Matthew, his enemies started to say, you know, Jesus isn't concerned about righteousness. He isn't concerned about obedience to God. To which Jesus said, on the contrary, you think I'm lowering God's standard? Actually, I'm upholding it. And that was the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. There are some people who still think about Jesus in this way. They act as if Jesus doesn't care at all if a believer's life actually conforms to God's commands because it's all of grace. Jesus never indicated that, nor did his disciples. Even the Apostle Paul, who penned the line, For grace you have been saved through faith, not as a result of works, that no one may boast. Even he refutes that concept of, of you know, not worrying about obedience in Romans chapter 6. The whole idea just doesn't exist in Scripture. The apostles have always been clear. Jesus cares about the righteousness of his disciples. In fact, I think the Apostle Paul says it best when he writes in 2 Corinthians 5.15 regarding Jesus, He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That's why Jesus died was for their holiness and sanctification. He intends for his disciples to be holy. And that matters because that holiness, that sanctification, is crucial to this mission. And I don't just mean that in a Matthew 5, salt of the earth, light of the world sense either, though I certainly wouldn't discredit any of that. Again, let me restate, personal holiness is critical to our mission in that sense. Our lives are supposed to be attractive. As ambassadors to God's kingdom, we're supposed to be a preview of what the kingdom of heaven is going to look like to those we come in contact with. But there's more to this whole discipleship thing than just that. And this is what I mean. Go back again and look at what Jesus taught His disciples in this Gospel. What you'll find is that it was all preparing them for this moment. The whole time he has been preparing them for the Great Commission. See, you need, to, you need to learn to have faith, not just because faith brings honor to God, but because faith is critical to the mission. You need to learn to love your enemies, not just because that honors God, but because you cannot and you will not pursue this mission without loving your enemies. Living for heaven rather than for this life, that's critical to the mindset of this mission. Fearing God rather than man, again, critical to the mission. Knowing who Jesus is and having confidence in what you know about Him, knowing who you are as a Christian and the role you're to play in His kingdom as a member of His church, that's all about the mission. You understand, it doesn't matter who you are. If you are in Christ, there should be one driving motive in your life, and that's to advance God's kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel. Now, we all have different roles to play in that mission. We have different gifts, different abilities. So this doesn't mean that we're all supposed to just drop what we're doing and become a missionary tomorrow. 
But no matter what our position on the team is, we all need to understand that we're playing the same game. And it's our job to work together to move the gospel football down the field. And this means that all the sanctification that's going on in your life is really going on to help equip you for that purpose. Again, it's there to train you for your position, the position that God has placed you in on His team. It isn't simply there for your own personal blessing and edification. You're going to be far happier in heaven if, if, if it was only about your personal edification. God would call you home right now. No, this is there for the blessing and edification of others. This is what Jesus did with His disciples. His primary purpose in their discipleship was not their perfection per se, but their usefulness. He was equipping them for their mission. And once He saw that that foundation had been successfully laid back in Matthew 16, once He recognized that they were going to continue to duplicate themselves after He was gone, that's when He began to speak about His death and resurrection. The idea is that that part of the mission was over. The next generation was secure. The church would be established. So the next thing on the agenda was to die for their sins. This is the chain that Jesus is describing here. He spent time training these disciples for this mission. Now he wants them to go and teach others the same thing. The point is that the disciples are not just to go and tell other people to be good people. No, they're to go and make disciple-makers. That's what Jesus taught His disciples. He taught them how to make disciples. It's what He intends them to go and teach others as well. So if we are to understand the summary of what Jesus taught His disciples, it all drives to this point, to the making of disciples. This means that if we're going to perform this mission of going out and making disciples, if we're going to engage ourselves in expanding the kingdom of heaven, then that doesn't just mean evangelism. It means teaching those we baptize how to go and make disciples as well. And we do that by teaching them to do all that Christ has commanded us. Jesus' instruction was aimed at disciple-making. So if you want to train up disciple-making disciples, you teach them Jesus' instruction. One of the major reasons why this church plant exists is because we understand that this is the way Jesus said His church would be built. This plan didn't get started over some mere preference. It goes back to our theology and the philosophy of ministry that spawns out of that theology. We understand that the easy believism gospel that's so prevalent in so many SBC churches is counterproductive to the gospel. Not only is it inaccurate, not only does it result in many false assurances of salvation, but it it also does not produce the kind of disciple-making disciples that Jesus talks about here. You know, you may have heard us use the phrase growth through depth before. That's the philosophy that we think Jesus expounds in the Great Commission. Grow through depth. It says you direct your teaching not to unbelievers, but to believers, teaching them to do all that Christ commanded them. It's then that the gospel will expand. In other words, the the church will expand outward as it's built upward. Now, of course, we don't think that we've arrived at this point as a church. We still obviously have a lot of work to do. And that's why many of the steps that we're going to take to try to grow in our outreach are actually going to be directed inward at the life of the church. That probably seems counterintuitive, but we believe it's what Jesus teaches here in the Great Commission. The church grows out as it's built up. So the book of James, for instance, which is the the next book I plan to, to teach through, the reason why I'm going there for our next series of exposition is because it's a book about practical Christianity. It's the Lord's brother relating to the church in very simple terms what basic practical Christianity looks like. And in that sense, while it may not look like a book about evangelism, I would really kind of say it is. Because it's going to teach the character that's needed to successfully engage in this task. So again, we're not there yet as a church, but this is the model that we have to follow if we want to pursue the Great Commission. The gospel advances through disciple-making disciples. It advances not simply by baptizing converts, but by teaching them to do all that Christ commanded them. This is a complete mission. Let's look now at our fourth and final attribute, 
Again, we can see that this is a rescue mission. It's a broad mission, mission and a complete mission. Now, finally, it's an empowered mission. That's our fourth attribute. Empowered. It's an empowered mission. This point really goes back to what we studied together in last week's passage, and so there's really not a whole lot I'm going to add to that here this morning. You go back to what Jesus taught His disciples, again, how He prepared them for their mission. And, the one, and one of the major, major lessons that He taught them was that they couldn't do anything. They couldn't do anything without Him. He was sending them on a mission to plunder the dominion of Satan, which is what evangelism is, by the way. You're turning traitors into loyalists. You're turning rebels into royal ambassadors. Jesus is sending these disciples behind enemy lines to bring back captives from Satan's kingdom into the kingdom of heaven. And this is a mission that these disciples are not sufficient for by their own power. Their enemy is too strong. Their foe too cunning. So the only way that they're going to accomplish this mission is under Jesus' power and authority. This is the significance of Matthew 4. When Jesus resists Satan with the wilderness temptations, He demonstrates there His ability to resist and overcome the devil. He's the only person in human history who's passed that test. Adam failed it. Everyone after Adam also failed it, not Jesus. He succeeded. Jesus then continues to demonstrate this authority by regularly casting out demons as a significant part of His ministry. And this is what's so ironic about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, by the way. The religious leaders say Jesus casts out demons by the power of Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. But Jesus says, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus' ability to exercise demons proved His authority over Satan, not the other way around. Of course, Jesus then transfers this authority to His disciples in Matthew 10, saying, Proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons. He was giving them the very same kind of authority that He had. But what did the disciples wrestle with? I mean, throughout the entire gospel, it was faith. They struggled with faith. Peter began to doubt as he came to Jesus on the water, and as he doubted, he began to sink. In Matthew 17, the disciples failed to cast out a particularly difficult demon, and what does Jesus say in response? He says, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? He comments on their faith. It's as Jesus told the disciples there, explaining why they could not cast out the demon, He says, Because of your little faith, For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. It was always by faith that Jesus' disciples would triumph, because it was always by His power that they would succeed. But they've always struggled to exercise that faith. In fact, if you look here in verse 17, even now they still do. Verse 17 says, And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him but some doubted. You know, here here the resurrected Jesus is standing in front of them and they still doubt. Just so you know, I don't think that means that they doubted they were seeing the resurrected Jesus. After all, He's standing there right in front of them. Rather, I think that means that they're still doubting His authority. They're still questioning the success of their mission. And so Peter started to doubt on the water whether or not Jesus was sufficient to sustain him in the midst of the storm. That's what the disciples struggled with when they tried to cast out the demon. I think that's what they're still struggling with here as well. They can see that Jesus is raised from the dead. They're just not sure what it means. And so Jesus interprets the event for them. He tells them first, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's what the resurrection means. And again, we saw this last week. The resurrection demonstrates Jesus' triumph over His enemies. Matthew interprets the event in that light. Here, Jesus states that interpretation explicitly. It tells the disciples the resurrection demonstrates. He tells them that it demonstrates His authority. He then issues them this mission on the basis of that authority. And then finally, He reassures their doubt. He says to them at the end of verse 20, And behold, I am with you always 
to the end of the age. He tells them, you don't need to worry because you're not doing this on your own. I'm sending you out to plunder the kingdom of Satan, but I'm sending you out under the umbrella of my authority. So you have nothing to fear. Look, I am already risen from the dead. I cannot be defeated, and I will not leave you. You go with my power. This is an empowered mission. And the overwhelming implication of this concept is that the disciples should not fear. They should engage this task with vigor and with boldness, understanding that as they plunge into Canaan with the gospel, the resurrected Lord strides forward at their head, leading the way. They cannot but be successful because Jesus is with them and He leads the way. And this is true, not, by the way, not just in the evangelistic portion of the Great Commission, but in the discipleship aspect as well. After all, it is Christ, right, who pours out the Holy Spirit on our hearts by faith, by the way, according to Matthew 7, 7-11. And so our ability to do all that He commanded us, that comes from Jesus as well, who ratifies the new covenant at the cross and baptizes us with the Holy Spirit when we believe. Even the Matthew 18 process, which Jesus has put in place so that in the words of Ephesians 4, the body may build itself up in love, even that process is superintended by Jesus, according to Matthew 18, 18-20. Literally every part of this mission is empowered by the resurrected Lord. And so the question you need to ask yourself is, will I go forward? Will I press on with Christ at my head? And I'd encourage us all to ask this question, not just individually, but corporately. Will we collectively, as a body, press forward with Christ in the lead. After five years, we've concluded the book of Matthew, so we have our foundation, right? I mean, we're familiar with the basic teachings of Christ. We know what He taught His disciples. And now we have our mandate as well. We're to take what's been entrusted to us and go out and use it to make disciples. So now, will we press forward and pursue this mission with the vigor and with the boldness that comes with knowing and observing all that Christ commanded us? I don't know that we can say that that's been the story of our church in the first five years. But my earnest prayer, as we conclude the Gospel of Matthew and with it as we symbolically turn the page on this first chapter of the, in the life of our church, my earnest prayer is that the story that will be told in the next chapter is that we rose and answered this call with a resounding yes. Let's pray.